from Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is president of the Vinyl Record Manufacturing Association and founder of Hand Drawn Pressing, Dustin Blocker. First of all, it looks like music videos are less and less necessary to an artist or band these days. For about 40 years now, music videos were the backbone of music promotion. But now we're seeing fewer and fewer artists that are opting to create a full-on music video these days. Record labels are seeing that the audience that they most want are now on TikTok. So now artists either create a series of 15-second videos, or if they do a music video, it's cut up into short pieces just to serve that particular market. Even major artists like Drake and Lady Gaga, Doja Cat, and Dua Lipa are following this trend since the feeling is that nobody sees a music video anymore anyway. Labels have less and less influence on what becomes a hit these days. So they go for a strategy of more exposure through many more shorter videos than just relying on a single long-form one. The reason why is that there may be millions of short-form views But the long-form video might only get 50K or so, so it's not really cost-effective anymore. There are exceptions, though. Country artists like Morgan Wallen, Luke Combs, and Oliver Anthony have put out live clips or performance videos, while Latin and hip-hop still rely on YouTube for music discovery, so long-term videos in those genres are still pretty effective. When it comes to pop and R&B, though, a long-form music video just doesn't move the needle of discovery. The bottom line is, if you want to get as many eyes and ears on your product as you can, then short-form videos are now the way to go. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting-edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new Hitmaker Engineer interviews, and much more. To get your copy, go to rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. That's rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now here's something that's actually pretty unbelievable, at least to me. It's hard to believe that a company as iconic as Gibson could lose blueprints and schematics and original manuals for its guitar amps and effects pedals. But that's exactly what happened. The good news is that it just recently recovered them from eBay of all places. Just a little background, Gibson was started by Orville Gibson in 1902 in Kalamazoo, Michigan. In 1944, though, the company was purchased by Chicago Musical Instruments, or CMI. Then, in 1969, it was required by a Panama-based conglomerate called ECL, which then changed its name to Norlin. But that's where the problem started. It was during the transition between CMI and Norlin that all these archives were lost. The Gibson Service Center was moved from Kalamazoo to Chicago, and then it was moved again. 
And during these moves, the archives weren't really given any proper attention, and they disappeared. But luckily, a former employee held on to them and then recently listed them on eBay. The company saw this and obviously jumped on it immediately to get this treasure trove of knowledge back. The size of the paperwork recovered is said to run across several large filing cabinets. In it includes schematics for Gibson Tweed, Falcon, and dual medalist amps, Epiphone Pacemaker and Ensign amps, and all of the long-lost Maestro effects pedals like the iconic Fuzz Tone, the Reverb Tremolo, and the Rover Rotating Speaker. Gibson has recently reissued some of these amps and effects, but now with the archives back in-house, perhaps they'll be getting closer than ever to the original. The moral of the story is that you never know what you'll find on eBay. My guest today is Dustin Blocker, who founded Hand Drawn Records in 2011 and Hand Drawn Vinyl Pressing in 2014. He's also been named the first president of the Vinyl Record Manufacturing Association, which is comprised of more than 30 companies from every level of vinyl production, including record labels, mastering, lacquer cutting, electroplating, record pressing, printmakers, equipment manufacturers, brokers, raw material suppliers, and even logistics service providers. During the interview, we spoke about the unseen steps in vinyl manufacturing, the latest in cutting-edge vinyl, developing quality standards for vinyl pressing, working towards sustainability, and much more. I spoke with Dustin via Zoom from his office in Texas. Let's go back to the beginning, and I want to hear how you got in the music business. I hear you're a reformed guitar player. Ah, uh, singer. singer. Singer, okay, yeah, tell me. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, I actually started singing in a band um, in 1999 and had the same band for 17 years, which is uh, pretty hard to do. I mean, you know, it's kind of like Spinal Tap, the drummers explode every couple of years, <laughs> you know, those types of things. Yeah, but it 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 was a it, it did pretty well regionally in Texas for you know a pretty good bulk of you know my twenties and thirties and stopped it down about eight years ago and got serious more about the business side of it. Uh, but yeah, I was singer in a band for it was called Exit Three Eighty and uh, it was kind of a rock band at the beginning and then kind of turned into more kind of folk Americana as we got a little bit older. Yeah, it's a, that's that's my background for sure. What made you make the change then to the business side? Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of the, you know, maturation of a lot of things. You get a, a good woman that says, Hey, get off the road and if you want to be with me. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, no, so my wife, we actually met when we were um, 24, so about 20 years ago. So she put up with it for a long, long time, um, maybe longer than she should have. But yeah, I had to get serious about, um, you know, not being on the road. We, we have three children now. So it was, it was, it was tough having kids and, and being away from them a lot. So that was one of the big, the big factors to that. Then I was at a, I was kind of started working in the corporate world in my 30s and um, kind of stumbled upon more of how do we turn music into a business type of mindset. And that's kind of the long and short of how we, we got to here. And then you got to hand-drawn records. So what drew you to vinyl? Yeah, yeah. So hand-drawn records actually started um, as an artist uh, record label back in 2011. Um, so I started as a record label. Um, I was again, kind of working at a corporation on the side at that the corporation was the main gig. And then the, the record label is a side gig, but putting on shows and compilations and South by Southwest, which is down in Austin. Um, and just, uh, kind of building, building, building every year. 
Um, and then in 2014, I met my now business partner uh, at the company that we both worked for. And he was really into music and kind of looking to do something fresh. And I told him at that point, I'd, I'd recorded my first LP. We uh, we did seven um, full-length albums on CD and all that previously. And then I challenged the band uh, in 2014 to record the vinyl, kind of before anybody was, uh, you know, the wave had kind of started back. It was kind of more of a challenge to us to kind of go into a format that was, you know, hard to do. And we had to kind of think it through. And that got my wheels spinning about vinyl. And then when he came to me, it was kind of the perfect store saying, uh, perfect storm going, Hey, is there music? Is there, you're in the music business. Or is there any business in it? And I said, well, vinyl is going to be big in a few years. So we kind of went down that path. And, uh, in 2017, we actually launched with the first new record presses, uh, on the planet in 34 years, uh, in the year and a half or so previous to that I was building out the pressing plant and kind of, kind of, uh, brokering jobs through local plants and all that to kind of learn the business. But yeah, we, we kind of went head into it um, in January 17. Okay, tell me about that. So you got brand new pressers then? Yes, yes. So um, at the point, uh, at that point, there were no presses that you could find out there in the market. So, so the idea, again, starting 14 of, hey, this should be a pretty cool thing to do. Uh, what does that even mean? It looks, it looks like it's exciting and interesting. Uh, there were some legacy plants at that point. Uh, there was about 30 maybe in the world when we launched total. So not a lot of mind share, not a lot of folks to go talk to or anything, but we did kind of fly around and see whoever let us in the door to kind of see what was going on behind the scenes. Everybody had this old like 1960s, 1970s equipment that was still going and hydraulic fluids on the floor and steams dripping from the pipes. And I was like, wow, this is pretty, um, pretty messed up, but uh, it's a, it's an awesome business and you know, we love the format. So how do we really dive into it? So the first iteration was, was me literally looking up um, what were the specs for old record presses? How do I get somebody to reverse engineer one? Um, and kind of during that deep dive period of in, in 14 and 15, um, I stumbled upon a German company that launched with manual record presses, uh, meaning that operators literally making them one at a time and putting them to the side. And, and, and then of course there was no autos in the world besides the old ones. So, um, and then I found a Canadian company called Viral Tech up in Toronto. And they actually had kind of a Frankenstein piecemealed one, but it, we flew up to Toronto, saw it, and uh, it was actually making records without a, a physical person touching them one at a time. Uh, so we, we launched, kind of put it all out there and said, okay, we believe in these guys. Put down the deposit and rolled the dice and built the plant before the presses were there, which was absolutely crazy. And then they delivered them. Uh, it took about 18 months to figure out how to really run them effectively. And we worked side by side with those guys. And uh, so we kind of had a leg up over a lot of folks in that time period um, as far as just having something new to use. But the the learning uh, curve was just crazy. It was just just a huge learning curve to learn how to make records well. And thankfully to this to this day, I mean, a, the good amount, a good amount of our employees still that are working on our record presses or the guys that we launched with. And there's just no training manual out there <laughs> in the world, even with new stuff on how to do it. It's, it's very complicated business, but it's rewarding because of that. What I keep on reading, and you would know this better, is that COVID really hurt a lot of plants because there were many people with a lot of industrial knowledge that decided they weren't coming back afterwards, which could really hurt you. Like you say, it, you know, there's a lot of experience that's required. Yeah, that's exactly right. So 
pretty interesting when you when you think about um, kind of the chain of vinyl production. It's not just at the plant level. There's just all these steps that happen before us that are specialty um, providers. So uh, you have to have cutting engineers that is highly specialized, uh, maybe the most specialized. And then there's electroplating. So they have to take those masters that they cut onto discs and make them into something that's duplicatable, which is what we use. Then you also have the compound providers, the ones that actually make the PVC themselves. Uh, and then, of course, you also have the specialty printers, because there's not a lot of those in the world that make that can that can score jackets, uh, fold them, glue them in a way that is uh, just unique for the record uh, vinyl record industry. So all those folks, it's not just, again, at the plant level. It was also who were these guys that ran these old Heidelberg presses on the printing side? Uh, who were guys that were cutting on Newman Lays that maybe didn't, um, you know, they, they didn't share that knowledge with anybody else? And then electroforming. Uh, was kind of the stepchild of all that stuff, kind of the least sexy part of it. Um, and there was nobody with new plating equipment out there either. So, you know, it, it was a, it was a lot, a lot at once when that when COVID hit because we were as an industry starting to get legs under us. And then of course that decimated the workforce. And then not only that, everybody trying to come back from it, the work, the 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 cost of labor jumped up a third, if not more, at least for us as a plant. Uh, so it just got way more expensive to make records at every level because it was very labor intensive. So, but yeah, we as a plant kind of survived through it. And then on the other side of that, I had started association with some of those in the supply chain and it completely died during COVID. And we thankfully re got it revived um, last year and it's starting to get some legs under it, which has been nice. But yeah, COVID, COVID was no friend to anybody, but it just really slowed down the momentum that we gained as an industry. And then Secondly, it caused a massive backlog of work um, that lasted for, uh, you know, almost 20 to 22 months across the industry that we're all kind of digging out of now that we're finally at, at good um, levels to hit timelines and things like we used to. But it was a, it was a, almost a two-year process of, sorry, I want to make the records. I'd, I'd love to make it happen, but it's going to be, you know, six months, eight months. Um, and now we're back to the eight-week, 12-week uh, timelines, which is been much better for us, much better for, of course, artists. You don't do any plating, do you? No. We get that outsourced. Uh, we use several platers in the U.S. Primarily, we use uh, Welcome 1979 in Nashville. They do the cutting in-house, too. So kind of makes it nice when there's a problem. We can ping them to go back and figure it out. Yeah, I would think that'd be a tough one. As I understand, there's a OSHA problem there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it depends on what state, you know, you do your plating in, of course, it's because you're doing work with chemicals, but uh, it's electroforming, so it's using nickel and, and then through electric uh, current, you're, and, and of course, chemicals, you're, you're, you're making them attached to a, a lacquer plate, and then what you peel off are, are called your, your mother masters, and then from those, you can make duplicates called stampers, which we as a, at the plant stamp the hot plastic and make the, make the records. Lacquers, so... When the um, Apollo Masters fire happened a few years ago, everybody was thinking this is going to be the end because as far as I know, there's only one place that manufactures lacquers right now. Is that true? That's correct. Yeah. Yep, yep, that is absolutely true. It's in Japan. Oddly, though, what, well, mostly surprising, I guess I should say, is that this, there hasn't been a, a slowdown in supply. So, yeah, when, when, um, when Apollo burned down, uh, yeah, everybody freaked out. And um, 
Uh, and that was actually right before COVID hit. It was like the month before COVID hit. So I was like, oh, no, now we're not going to have any laughers. Uh, where's the business going? You know, what's going to happen? Um, because, uh, you, you, you know, if there's no lacquers, there's no records. That's how fragile this it all is. So if nobody can cut the masters, which is the first step of the process, it doesn't matter if there's 200 plants on the planet. Nobody can make anything. Um, so there's lacquers and then there is DMM. Um, and there's a few DMM, which is direct metal mastering that, that cut onto copper plates instead of lacquers. But there's a, a, a conglomerate that kind of holds all those. So there's, they're just not readily available for independent plants. So lacquers is the way to go. And sonically, typically, um, Sonics is the, everybody, it's a warmer uh, cut with a lacquer versus a DMM. So uh, artists prefer it. We prefer, uh, we prefer the sound quality as well. But yeah, so there's the one provider, uh, provider they've kind of ramped up their production. And um, crazy enough, I noted earlier, there's about 30, uh, there was about 30 on the planet when we launched. Now we hear numbers that there's 175, maybe up to 200 are going to be uh, by the time we hit next year, plants, record pressing plants on the planet. So you just imagine exponentially how many more lacquers and titles need to be made. But to my knowledge, and we're really dug in with the knowledge base, uh, that's still the only guys out there making them. How about HD vinyl? So what do you know about that? Yeah, I, I know a little, a little, very little about it. I know it's something that they've been working on for several years. Uh, we started seeing pitches for HD vinyl. It had to be the 2019 making vinyl conference in Detroit, I believe, that I saw their first presentation on them. Um, I have not seen if they have a workable product out in the market. I have not heard about them launching or it being any kind of big player. I, I really don't know. I had dinner with them before COVID, and they were telling me that their biggest problem was the precision of the laser that they needed. And they found out that even the most precise laser available, even to NASA, was not sufficient for what they required. So they went to the University of Vienna and they hired the top physicists there to come up with a brand new, super precise laser. And that was the last I heard. It was in development, but that was the key piece to making it all work. Wow. Yeah, I, what's amazing, I mean, anecdotally, I've heard this several times from different uh, people all through the chain for years. And it, it seems to be that when somebody wants to come and revolutionize the vinyl industry, it just, that's just not how this works. <laughs> so for lack of better terms, it's analog. Somehow Edison figured it out. You know, he figured it out first and it hasn't really changed much. You know, it was a wax tube, a wax cylinder. And then, you know, they had to figure out, um, you know, shellac were the first ones. But the way that it was always made, which is cutting physically into a record with a hard surface analog music through vibration is just, and then, of course, again, the duplication of it, what kind of, it went from shellac, of course, then the vinyl when it got standardized and the size got standardized and the RAA curve got standardized. But, uh, yeah, starting it over and people say, what about 3D modeling? Let's, uh, you know, you can make all these 3D printers and you can make all this great stuff. How about that? Also, um, what about a different way of, of doing injection, right? So we're doing compression molding. What about injection molding? And everybody goes round and round. There's a company that's been trying to do injection molding for years and years. And I believe maybe they're even off the ground with it, but it's such a tiny piece of the market that I know about that. It just, it just seems like all those novel ideas have, have never really uh, taken on where something that's 60 years old, the technology is 60 years old seems to be the one that lasts and it keeps coming back. And 
almost it feels like it's unkillable. <laughs> well, you mentioned that there's only 30 plants when you started and there's 175 or so now. I know that a lot of those use recycled presses. I know you are using new presses, but there must be other plants that do the same, right? Yes, exactly right. So there's two kind of two providers of the record presses, and they've been kind of on back order for years and years, of course. And what's essentially happened is they're replacing those old ones um, at the plants that still have uh, the old stuff and they have the cash flow to keep growing, et cetera. Um, you know, those older models are kind of getting phased out uh, with these newer models. And then, of course, new guys to, to it, like, you know, guys like us that have been doing for, you know, sub 10 years, there, there is only one way to even get launched and it is with new equipment. Um, so really the heavy lifting of those 170, whatever, mostly come on the backs of new presses. There's just no way to um, make the old ones work any longer. And that's some have been in production for 60 plus years. At some of the plants we've been to, um, kind of legacy plants is what I call them. Uh, you know, there's, there's bone yards of, uh, you know, 40, 50,000 square feet of just uh, like you would see at an old um, auto yard of parts on the ground and, oh, we need an old chassis and let's go grab it. Let's go get a, a spring from a 1955 Chevy, whatever. And that's kind of how these boneyards work for some of these old plants. And so they've had to, they've had to uh, just to, to stay relevant and, and be able to work, you have to have new stuff. Uh, but even on the new stuff, it breaks all the time. Literally every day you're breaking. So every plant has mechanical managers, us, us included, of course, on, on the floor there all day. You know, we run... We were running 24 hours for 26 months. Now we're down to 18, which is great. Much more manageable than running around the clock for two plus years. So we get to be at two shifts. And thankfully, that means we're not breaking as much stuff. But yeah, it's just a, it's a hard road to hoe, um, regardless of how good or new the equipment is. It's just a, a manual analog process, um, very physical process. So, But the new does help, definitely. Tell me about the Vinyl Record Manufacturers Association. Yeah, yeah. So the the Making Vinyl Conference, um, I said earlier back in 19, when I, or I guess it was 2017 was the first one in Detroit. In 2019, it was in Hollywood. So it's a typical conference, like any business conference, you go and you hear from all parts of the industry, but it was, it was tied mainly to vinyl. So you had people that are on the manufacturing side, the, um, uh, the supply chain side, all the way through um, RAA and everybody else. What I found, though, was that on the supply chain side, the conversations we had in the back of the room were much more valuable than sitting and listening to all the panels. And so I said, well, we should be networking more. We should be connecting more, sharing ideas. Like you said earlier, the, you know, the folks that had been doing it for 70 years weren't, weren't really – or they might have been in the room, and they are willing to share, but they weren't going to be there many years longer. So how do we really start talking to those folks? And then all of us, you know, younger guys and gals, how do we talk more and in a real way? and kind of share ideas. So that was the first iteration. Um, it was in October of 2019. Um, in December, we had our first meeting for VRMA. So the conference happened in October. By December, we had an email chain going saying, hey, we should be doing this more. And we brought uh, about 30 companies uh, to Nashville and had just a real bare bones discussion about what the association could be, what should it be, what are the steps forward, and really kind of got off the ground with bylaws and all that. And then bang, COVID hit in February, March, 2020. And then we didn't, it just kind of shuttered down, right? We had some calls and talks, but what was really great is I, I got a call in 
uh, it was about March of 22 saying, Hey, that was a really cool thing. Let's, let's try to revive that. Uh, so myself and a few other, um, key folks, we kind of, kind of put the defibrillator on it and then try to restart it. And it, and it has been taken off like gangbusters. So we've been together for about 14 months at this point, 16 months and 44 companies, uh, are part of the association. And we've been able to go up to Washington DC and talk about recycling and, and that greenwashing and all that good stuff. And, uh, and then just really work on standards and, and practices, um, new technologies that are coming in the market, what that means to us, how do we, you know, embolden or, or bolster up the supply chain uh, to go out there and, and really keep this thing healthy and strong. And uh, so, yeah, the association, the, the Vinyl Record Manufacturer Association has been awesome. Um, the big um, number of companies are, are domestic. And then we do have quite a few companies that are actually out of the EU that are starting to join kind of slowly on. So uh, starting to get some worldwide legs for sure. There used to be a, an association that was similar. And I'm talking back in the days when it was vinyl going to tape. And then about the time when CDs took over, the organization folded. I, for the life of me, I can't remember what it was called. But it was the same thing. They had a conference every year. I just uh, can't remember. But I know that it petered out. First, with CDs, it began to, when CDs took over, you know, that was the only physical product anybody cared about. But uh, then, as soon as it started to go towards digital, then for sure that killed it. So, you know, 2001, 2002, something like that. I can't remember the name of it. Anyway, you mentioned before about standards. So, what kind of standards are are you talking about? Yeah, so... So primarily, um, the, the first ones look at quality. So if you go to some of these conferences, what everybody, and especially with the explosion of the number of plants, uh, you know, quality can mean this to this plant, this to that. But at the end of the day, how do we make sure we're standardizing quality so that when, uh, you know, these stands that are spending $40, $45 on an LP, open it up and, you know, it's not warped, of course. There's not stitching and cross-stitching and, and, and all kinds of issues on the actual audio. The label's in the right side. <laughs> the labels um, centered, you know, all those kind of basics. So really the first step was looking at standards was on the quality of the vinyl itself. So we uh, actually worked with third man um, pressing up in uh, Detroit, actually led the charge on that. And they did a, a bang up job and, and worked with the committees within the, the organization and said, hey, how do we really put out a quality standards guide based mainly on QC, what to listen for? What are um, you know new operators looking for? What are QA specialists and QC specialists looking for on the plant floor, and what's acceptable and what's not? Um, so we launched that in Minneapolis this year at the Making Vinyl Conference and our Vinyl um, Record Manufacturer Association in-person meeting um, back in June, and uh, it's been awesome. It's been just a great tool for new plants and legacy plants alike. And then the next one on the standard side is actually working on a press operator's manual. So, you know, there's not that, you, you said it earlier, there's kind of the older presses. And then guys like us, we have some new ones. There's only a few new ones out there in the market. But the way to make a high quality record is is pretty much the same. It's it's using steam um, and chill water and certain times that the press is closed and open and, and what that looks like. Um, and so what is the operator um, looking for on the floor to be able to, 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 to make high quality records precisely over a long period of time. So those have been the first two. 
the next ones in the that are in committee right now are at the next level is looking at kind of warehousing, uh, ERP solutions, uh, cardboard specs, uh, shipping specs, shrink wrap. Um, what, what does all that look like on the next level of, of the packing side of it to get high quality units out to the market uh, across multiple plants so that it's kind of more uh, streamlined? I just remembered the name of the association was IRMA, Independent Records Manufacturers Association. Oh, so close. VRMA, IRMA. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know when that petered I'll out. I'll look but that up. I've always asked, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because I've, I've looked at that. So that was more in the tape world, huh? No, it was a combination of everything physical. But it, it started with vinyl and then, you know, moved to tape, then CD. But, I, you know, I can remember I used to teach a uh, mastering class at college here. And I used to take my classes on a field trip to uh, what was first a big vinyl pressing plant, an indie pressing plant. It was huge, filled with presses. And then I remember one year we came back and it was half presses and half cassette. Then the following year we came back and it was mostly all cassette. Then a couple of years after that, the cassettes were gone and it was all CD. It just changed like overnight almost. So just goes to show you. And now vinyl's back and it's big. It's huge. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting when you look at the arc of it, if you look at, you know, the RA numbers from, you know, 76, I think when they started capturing them to now and kind of the, 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 the like what you're talking about, you always think of a quality versus not compatibility. I'm, I'm blanking on the word I'm trying to think of um, kind of uh, put in your car, move through the, move through the day. Anyways, as you're looking at the quality side, so the highest quality, of course, was vinyl, always was vinyl. Tape in the recording studio is actually a higher level of quality than vinyl records, but to get that into um, you know, the mass is very, very difficult. So then tape actually had a hit down of quality, of course, and then CD combined the two things. But then you know, when digital hit, it started fracturing the market pretty dramatically, and, and then now we're getting to there's just streaming and vinyl left. I mean, vinyl's been outselling digital downloads for two years and it's been outselling CDs for the last year and a half too. So yeah, it's, it's what everybody really sees is just going to be streaming and vinyl for the foreseeable future. You mentioned sustainability before. So where are you going with that? Yeah. So it's really looking at regional recyclable uh, recyclability. So there's post-consumer, which is a little more difficult, right? Post-consumer, it goes out into the market. You got to try to get it back and chop it up and reuse it. At, at the plant level, post-industrial is where most of us live, and the ones that don't live there yet need to get there. So not only, of course, is it great for the environment, but of course, the bottom line, right? So what's really great about making records, what doesn't pass QC goes right back into the granulator, gets chopped up, gets remade into new records. Also, all the excess, what's called flash. So if you've ever seen a record uh, being made, if some of your viewers or listeners watch on YouTube, something like that the excess material that drops off, all that gets recycled. And that, by the way, for a plant, I mean, you will fill up, uh, you know, 10 bins uh, every two, three hours. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of space that if you're not chopping it back up and using it, you're crazy because it just would fill up a container load in a, in a trash yard somewhere. Um, so that's post-industrial. So that's really the biggest piece right now is is um, plants that don't have on-site granulators to grind the material back up and reuse the material. Also, of course, um, what are called punchers, they punch out that center label, which is paper. 
um, if they don't have on site, really educating them and giving them resources to be able to go out and purchase these things, uh, to have it at the plant level. Um, the second iteration of that, of course, is regionality, to have off-site companies that, that take that scrap and, and, and chop it up and send it back to you to use. Because uh, there's really no value for PVC uh, that we use besides maybe floor mats, because the rest of PVC, of course, is pipes in the ground, wall coverings, uh, roofing materials, all those things that builders use. And, and the way that vinyl records are made, there's a lot of waxes to get sound quality way down. Uh, so it's not really valuable outside of our market to use. So we need to be able to use as much of it as possible. I had no idea about that. Okay, last question, Dustin. What's the best piece of advice that maybe you learned along the way or somebody imparted to you? For launching a record pressing plant or an association? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess we go a lot of different ways, right? Yeah, just all the above. above. Yeah. I mean, I would say um, don't follow don't follow the dollar signs. I think I'm a little, I'm actually a little bit worried. Um, when we, when we no, throw off that number of how many plants are coming online, um, and what the demand actually looks like post COVID there, there have been some very large plants on the planet that have doubled, tripled, quadrupled capacity that, that essentially hold all the major label volume, uh, and can do all that volume without any of the mid tier or definitely any of the small guys being able to even touch. And so, um, you know, as you look at dollar signs, if you're a business guy and you go, oh, I have a lot of money, I want to throw it and make a pressing plant, something really sexy, I would just caution to really see if you could do that much business regionally um, with local artists and regional artists without the majors being part of that equation at all. And um, so, I mean, thankfully, we came at a time that we uh, got to really grow with not a lot of pressure of that many more uh, plants and competition out there. So we kind of got to grow our book of business naturally, organically. And to this day, I mean, that's what we live off of is represses and and new jobs off of existing customers um, by just treating them the right way and, and doing what we say. And if we can't hit a timeline, we just say, hey, we're not going to mail make it uh, rather than take it and miss it and not communicate it. So that and then just trying to stay super high quality at the plant level. But I don't know if there's going to be that much breathing room for a lot of the new guys that come on. So I get a little, I'm not skeptical um, because it is uh, a, a big market out there, but I am a little bit worried for them that it's going to go a lot slower um, than it maybe happened for us all those years ago uh, in today's market. So I would just caution to just, if you're going to launch something like this, any kind of thing tied to the vinyl record industry, I would say make sure to have a lot of money in the bank. What we thought when we launched, kind of it came true. We said we need three years of run rate. We need three years of cash in the bank if we have virtually no business that we can stay open and pay a staff and run skeleton and all that. And we were healthy from day one uh, as far as how much business we had, but not to the level where we as owners could pay ourselves or not to the level where we could go out and hire a lot of people and have 401ks and all that. That took until about year four and five and six. So we, and, and we almost, you know, didn't make it through the third year, just financially, just going, it was just real close. And then, oh, we made it. And then magically it kind of happens. But that's the, that's the big note, I would say, to, to small business owners, just to, to treat it with care, know that it is, it is a craft and um, take your time and, and hopefully do it right and good things will happen. So. That's how we got to where we are, and that's hopefully the message that can get out there and 
and uh, get out there to the artists to say know who they're working with. I'd say that was the one more thing, um, Bobby, is just looking at this huge growth of all the big, massive plants. They don't really need or want to service all the local artists and the guys that are making a thousand or under. So, so if you don't know where it's getting made, that's a problem. Don't, don't use brokers and all that kind of stuff that if you don't at least know that broker is sending it to this plant or to make your life easier as an artist, or you can work with the plant directly because you have enough time and energy. Um, I would, I would absolutely uh, say that was my biggest piece of advice for the consumer, which is, of course, the label and the artist and the management group. You can find out more about Dustin and Hand Drawn Pressing at handdrawnpressing.com. That's handdrawn, D-R-A-W-N, pressing, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. You can also learn all about the latest in music news, audio and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 